All right, welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Jay Scott, who is a full-time real estate investor who specializes in rehabbing single-family homes. Jay and his wife, Carol, started Lish Properties in 2008, and in that time, they have bought, rehabbed, and resold over $10 million in residential real estate. Jay, his wife, Carol, and Mark Ferguson also have written the book on negotiating real estate. So welcome to the show today, Jay. How you doing? Good. How's it going, Scott? Glad to be here. Glad to have you on the show. And I just want to start off with saying those two books are hands down by far the best real estate books that have helped me in my personal business of all time. Hands down. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for documenting your rehabs. I mean, it, for what it did for me as a, as a new investor back in 2012 and, and the next years doing my own rehabs was it helped give me like an order of operations. It, you like give this comfort from just reading from what you've done. You're like, oh, okay, that's how it's done. So you make it really easy to repeat the process. So. Well, the cool thing is when I, I originally wrote the books, it wasn't so much from, or let's say if, if we go back a little bit further to 2008, when I originally started my blog, which um, I essentially used to capture all the details of our first flips, uh, basically I tried to post every day on what was working, what wasn't working, what we were learning, because we, we came into this with no experience. Back in 2008, there weren't a whole lot of uh, real estate investors out there to learn from. Most of them had uh, gone by the wayside after the, uh, the big recession. The ones mm -hmm. that were still around were, were struggling and didn't really have time to be mentoring other people. So we essentially learned this business ourselves. And the goal of the blog at the time was just to document what we were learning, what was working, what wasn't working, uh, create some accountability for ourselves. And so um, what we found was just that, that documentation process, that that having to be honest because other people were reading and giving feedback and um, that really helped us get started. So unlike a lot of people that write books on flipping houses or real estate or whatever the topic is, um, we didn't go in with this, this, um, this assumption of authority. Um, originally, by the time I wrote the books, um, I certainly had a lot of experience, but when we first started uh, documenting our process, um, this was more from the perspective of somebody who had no idea what he was doing, um, learn as I go along. So the books have always kind of been a reflection of that. It's not so much, hey, I, I know everything. Here's, here's, uh, here's what you have to do. It's more, here's our journey. Here's what's worked for us. Here's what hasn't worked for us. And I recognize that not everything in the book is going to work for everybody in every market. Um, but hopefully the, um, the, the, the gist of the material is going to apply to most people at most times. And, and so um, I think that's kind of the difference between us and, and a lot of other authors in the space in that we try not to come from it from a, a necessarily the perspective of we're the experts. You have to listen to us, but more, this is what we've learned. This is what we have to, to share. I hopefully it'll help. Mm. And I think that you, you have this amazing modesty to yourself. And I love that. I think that comes through. And, and just talking about that website, you have so much free content on there, right? And it's, you don't have any run to the back of the room sales or anything crazy. It's here's the education process. Here's what we went through. And I, I love the, the amount of material on your website, you know, just download. I still use those forms, you know, today and it, it's great. So the, my favorite part is the top right corner, right? Where you break down each of your projects. So is that how, did you start this kind of like is it more of like a blog process or just here's what we're learning day by day? 
Yeah, it was, it really, it started, uh, I started documenting about six months before we ever bought a deal. And for us, it was, this is, this is accountability. Um, this mm. is what we want to do. This is how we plan to do it. Follow along. Um, and knowing that I had to write every day forced me to actually keep moving forward. Didn't let me give up because within six months, even before we ever purchased our first deal, um, we had people that were reading the blog religiously and, and were contacting us saying, Hey, try this or, Hey, thanks for that. Or, mm -hmm. Hey, I saw this mistake. Here's something that's worked for us. And just knowing that there are people out there that were following us and were, were kind of waiting for us to put out updates. It kind of forced us to keep, to keep moving forward. Uh, so for me, the, the blog was so much an accountability thing, not so much a, let me teach other people. Um, mm. And so, uh, like you said, the, what the blog ultimately ended up being was a, a, a gory detail accounting of our first 50 projects. And unfortunately, after about 50 projects, uh, it, it ended up being a little too time consuming. So we kind of stopped it at 50. But if you go back through those first 50 projects, you really see like the evolution of our business and, and our skill set and our experience and our knowledge. Um, you look at that first property that we bought and I go back and I read through the, the blog posts on that first property and I see all these mistakes we made. And I actually did a post a couple years later, which was top 10 things we learned on our first project. And it's, it's in, to some extent, it's a little bit embarrassing looking back, but, it, it's it's real life and mm. nobody nobody gets it right the first time and it's always a learning experience and, and I'm kind of proud of the fact that uh, we were able to make all these mistakes uh, in this public forum in this public space um, just to show people that hey you, you have all these gurus out there saying it's so easy and 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 follow this formula and you'll never make a mistake that's not real life real life is you're gonna make mistakes and the goal is not to make the same mistakes twice and hopefully to learn from other people's mistakes so you don't make the same ones but it, it's it's a process and and so it's I, I enjoy going back and reading through our blog and just seeing um, the process that we went through knowing that other people go through the process on a daily basis so I still remember the struggle and uh, that was part of the reason we wrote the books was because uh, we just, we, we wanted to show other people that, that you can struggle, but you can still make it. Yeah. And well said, I think that's the best thing about books, right? It's you can get the, you can get in the head of someone who is experienced who have written down the process and you can sidestep those minds, you know, learning just the basics. And I, I love that post when you reflected, you know, the top 10 things I learned in the first flip. So, so what are some of those lessons that you learned And Is there any that you just, you still can't forget today? Oh, it's so funny. Okay. I'm, I'm actually, I'm sitting at my computer. I want to bring up that post because it's, <laughs> I haven't revisited that post in, in a while. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah, there, there's so much. And the funny thing is, here you go, top 10 lessons learned on house one. And I, I know people can't see this as they're listening, um, but I'll go through a couple. Um, and, and it's so funny reading back through these because a lot of these are obvious to anybody that's been in the business for a little while. But number one is, is money is made when you buy, not when you sell. And I think this is one of those things that um, has become a common maxim in, in real estate. Everybody knows that like you make money when you buy. But how many people out there actually think about this, what that means? Um, it's easy to say, um, but it's hard to live. And I still see so many people, especially in today's market, um, that take the attitude, hey, it's really tough to find properties. I just want to get something. I just want to get started in this business. Okay, I'm going to buy a thin deal. But even if I make 
$5,000 or $2,000, or if I break even, um, it's still a learning experience. But I think what a lot of people don't realize on their first flip is, yeah, you go in with the expectation, okay, I'm just going to make $1,000 or $2,000 or break even. There's a lot of places where you can lose a little bit of money um, mm -hmm. that adds up. You overpay a little bit, $1,000, $2,000, okay, there's 1000 or 2000 that that you thought you had that you didn't. Uh, rehab comes in, three or four thousand over budget okay there's three or four thousand more that that you expected that you didn't have um, you go to sell the property and the seller asks for some concessions they ask for two thousand dollars in closing costs or something like that there's another two thousand um, you sell the property for three thousand less than you thought you were gonna sell it for not a big deal right well there's another three thousand before you know it, you've made 10000 15000 less than you anticipated. Um, if your goal was to break even, you might now be in the hole for $15,000. Um, so if you go in with a conservative attitude, hey, you make money when you buy, you really got to buy low. Um, I plan to make fifteen or twenty or 25000 on your first deal. Then if you're off by 15000 you still walk away with a profit. So that whole you make money when you buy is such an important, it's such an important maxim, especially today when buying is really tough. I talk mm -hmm. a lot about um, um, in any flipping market, one of two things is going to be true. It's either going to be easy to buy and tough to sell, or it's going to be easy to sell and tough to buy. There's no perfect real estate market. There's no real estate market where a flipper can go in and easy to buy houses. There's millions of houses out there. And then there's millions of buyers out there, easy to sell houses. I mean, just uh, economics doesn't work like that. Supply and demand. Um, so um, in today's market, it's really tough to buy. When we started, it was really easy to buy. We could go out and open up the MLS and throw a dart and we'd hit a, a foreclosure property that was probably a great deal. Um, but back then it was really tough to sell. So it was a lot easier to make money when you bought back then. Today, it's a lot tougher because there's a lot of competition. Prices are high. Prices are inflated. There are a lot of new investors coming in that are overpaying. So just, I, I, I know I labored that point a little bit, but just uh, of the top 10 lessons learned on house one, the first one, you make money when you buy is, is pretty important. And you realize that it wasn't just applicable to the first house we did. It's been applicable to every house we've ever bought and mm -hmm. sold. And that's a bedrock foundation principle. So, you know, it seems simple, but sometimes, you know, emotions get caught up. And, and I remember, I think I, I either heard it from the April event down in Philly, Dave Horn, the Mid-Atlantic Summit or yep. something else. But I, this story, maybe it was at dinner and you were talking about, here's my profit, right? 20, 25,000. If it comes $500 of whatever that it, I pass in the yeah, I, I love that because that's how you get you get eaten away, right? Oh, okay, maybe nineteen this time, maybe, and you know. it, it's so easy, and that's part of the reason we wrote the negotiating book is because people don't realize how easy it is to give your profit away a hundred dollars at a time. Um, you you say, okay, I need twenty thousand in profit, and you run the numbers, and it shows only nineteen, and you're like, okay, well, it's only a thousand dollars. Fine, do that. And then you uh, you go to the closing table, and the closing attorney says it's going to cost fifteen hundred dollars to close. You were expecting a thousand. Okay, well, there's five hundred, and your carpenter overcharges you 200 that you could have negotiated down or you, you weren't smart on buying materials and you pay an extra few hundred of materials. All these things add up. And a lot of people, they go in with, with these rose colored glasses where they're like, 
I'm going to make 20 or 25 or $50,000. So, okay, it doesn't matter if, I, if I'm losing a thousand here or if I'm spending an extra couple here or an extra couple hundred there, or an extra couple thousand there. Um, and they get to the end of the project and they realize, wow, I thought I was going to make 25 and I ended up making three or worse yet, you break even or lose money. And you look back and you think, wow, if I just would have negotiated these 50 things just a tiny bit, each of those 50 things I could have saved or earned an extra hundred bucks and there's another five or ten or fifteen thousand dollars in my pocket so yeah it really is one of those things that after you've done a couple deals you realize how the little things can really add up and you need to be diligent the whole way through and you, you need to, to follow your cost follow your process and don't give in just because you feel like okay there's a lot of room to 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 lose money every once in a while because it'll be made up at the end mm-hmm. Well said. So let's start with the basics. So, you know, that, that article is amazing. I'm definitely going to link it in the show notes. Um, so, so analyzing flip deals. So you talk about the quantitative or a gut feeling or a maximum purchase price formula. So what are some of the processes they use at first? And then what have you kind of gravitated towards as you had that experience? Yeah. So I'm a quantitative person. I have an electrical engineering degree. I, I'm an engineer by, by, uh, personality, I guess. And I, I that kind of shows through in, in everything I do. If you read the, the books I've written, um, I probably write a little bit more like textbook style than, than most real estate authors who um, like the stories and the anecdotes and, and I don't want to say fluffy stuff, but the, the less um, the less quantitative stuff. I, I write very quantitatively and, and very deliberately. Um, and that's the way I, I manage my business. So Going in from day one, um, I wanted to understand what what does the formula look like, if there is a formula for analyzing deals. And I remember um, when I first started, everybody talking about the 70% rule. Um, you basically take 70% of the, the resale value, subtract out your rehab costs, and that's a good purchase price. And after thinking about that for a little while, I realized, okay, that sort of makes sense. Um, the reason we pick 70% is because it basically leaves 30% of the resale value for two things. Um, all of your fixed costs and your fixed costs being um, all your purchase costs, all your um, holding costs like insurance and, and taxes, all your uh, resale costs like commissions and stuff. So at 30% of the resale value um, is your fixed costs and your profit. So, which is great, but the problem is a lot of times you don't have control over those fixed costs. Um, if you're using a hard money lender, your fixed costs are going to be a lot higher than if you're paying cash. And if you're in a place with high taxes, your fixed costs are going to be a lot more expensive than if you're in a place with low taxes. So when you kind of use the 70% rule and just kind of leave that 30% for fixed costs and profit, because you don't really have control over your fixed costs, you now no longer have control over your profit. Um, and so I didn't really like that. So I said, okay, how can I sit down and create a formula that actually lets me model what my exact profit's gonna be based on what I know my fixed costs are gonna be, based on what the purchase price might be, based on what the resale value is, um, all that stuff. And so, um, it's not rocket science, but unfortunately, um, I couldn't find anybody that had done it before me. I'm sure plenty of investors were using it, but nobody had written it down. So I came up with this, this relatively simple formula, and I've been using that formula for 10 years. I've written about that formula, um, and it's basically you just take the, uh, the resale values, you subtract out the purchase price, your fixed costs, um, your rehab costs, um, and that's your profit. 
Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's not rocket science, but that simple formula and, and the hard part about that formula, again, isn't, isn't figuring out the formula. It's making sure you have good numbers, making sure you know for certain what your resale value is, know for certain what your fixed costs are, know for certain what your rehab costs are. But if you can figure out those numbers relatively consistently and accurately, um, you can model your, your, your profit pretty easily and pretty pretty precisely and so we've been using that formula for for 10 years now and it, it's worked well for us and everybody we we talk to and give it to um it, it generally works well yeah it's it's solid and i think that's that's why you have such success is you know in the book you're, you're breaking down those fixed costs and it's line by line item it's it's easy to read easy easy to understand and i love that quantitative approach because as a, as a former teacher, I, I love that process. It was just so easy to understand. I'm like, oh, that's how it's done. Book it. That's the cost. Yep. It's not like the flipping shows where, like you said, those that, that 30%, it's like, well, they really don't account for that. So, Yeah, I, I, like, to, I like to joke that if, uh, if you can't put it into Excel, it's, it, you're, you're not doing enough quantitative thinking. Um, I know a lot of people that, that work on gut feel, and there's nothing wrong with gut feel. I mean, let's, let's mm. be honest. I mean, uh, a lot of the deals, the best deals, or the, a lot of the deals we've, we didn't end up doing um, was because, not because we quantifiably, they, they didn't, they didn't uh, pencil out. It was more because we had a bad gut feel. And so you got to listen to your gut, um, mm. but don't just listen to your gut. You've also got to see the numbers. Um, and, and when you put those two things together, I mean, you really, you really become bulletproof. Yeah. And that's great. So, so if you're walking to a property, what's, what are some things that just hit you right in the gut? You're like, mm, I should probably stay away. So, I like to talk about, and, and my wife is queen of this. I mean, this is, this is something that, that she is so good at. Um, you have to start long before you get to the property. And so we have a property we're considering. First thing we're going to do is we're going to map out how to get to the property if we don't know how to get there. And we're going to map out different routes. Um, and we may not do this before we end up putting in an offer on the property, but at some point before we decide to move forward with the property, we're going to map out all the routes and we're going to see, okay, how are buyers going to get to this house and what are they going to see on their way to this house? Um, there's a story when my wife and I moved from California to Atlanta. Um, we ended up buying a house in Atlanta. We, we went to Atlanta. We hadn't spent much time there. We were only there for a day. We had a real estate agent who was going to take us house to house to house and hopefully we we're going to find a house. The house we ended up buying, we almost didn't buy because our real estate agent took us to that house first from the airport, and she took us this way that was through some neighborhoods that weren't so nice, uh, some areas where we just weren't really comfortable living um, mm -hmm. to get to our house. And we ended up buying the house. And it was six months later that once we got to know the area that my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we said, you know, this is a really nice area there were nice ways that we could have driven into this house that would have made this like so much more appealing. If the real estate agent really wanted to, to show off this house and showcase this, this house, she should have taken a different direction. Um, instead, she went through some areas that were a little bit sketchy and, and it, it, it really, it didn't leave the best taste in our mouths. Um, so it made us realize that you need to start from the beginning when your buyers go to see the house. Um, which direction do they most likely come? Which neighborhoods are they going to drive through? What are they going to see before they get to your house? Is that going to turn them on or turn them off? Um, mm -hmm. And so if the most typical route to a house is through areas that are going to turn off buyers, well, 
there's a negative. Um, on, conversely, if the typical travel route to a house is through nice areas that are gonna really entice buyers, well, that's a plus. Uh, maybe you can do things like in the MLS listing, you can give directions, turn by turn directions that kind of force them to come a certain way. But that, that so you gotta start before you get to the house. Um, and so that's the big view. Then as you get closer to the house, you need to start looking at things like the neighbors, the neighborhood. Um, we bought a house once, and I, I tell this story, I think in the negotiating book, um, where um, we bought a house, we came in, we saw it on a Saturday, we negotiated the house, we never saw the house again until we actually purchased it. And the day my contractor showed up to start work on the house, the day after closing, um, they get to the house and these two Rottweilers who are living in the house next door run up to the fence and start barking. And they're there barking all day. And mm -hmm. what we realized was the neighbors, they would go to work every day, they'd let their dogs out, the dogs would bark all day. We saw the house on a Saturday and neighbors were home from work on a Saturday, so the dogs were inside. So we had no idea. Um, so it was just a good reminder that you wanna see the neighbor's houses at different times. You wanna check out the neighborhood at different times. Um, you wanna know the factors that you don't necessarily think about because when you go to sell that house, there's a good chance that, that potential buyers are gonna show up to the house on a Tuesday afternoon. And the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna see those big, scary looking dogs. And if they have little kids, they may not wanna buy the house just because of the dogs. Had we done a little bit more due diligence, had we shown up to the house a couple different times during the week just to check things out and see, see what the neighbors were like and what was going on, we may have negotiated a better price. We may not have purchased the house to begin with. So knowing what's going on in the neighborhood, knowing what's going on on the larger scale uh, is always good. So we talk about what do you look for when you walk into a house? We start looking long before we get to a house. Um, that said, um, to answer your question, when we do get to the house, the first thing we do is we want to see where, and again, this just goes back to what are your buyers going to see when they pull up for the first time? You only get one chance to see a house through fresh eyes. So it's really important that the first time you see the house, you're paying attention. I know people that'll drive up to a house and they're like looking down at their notes or, or they're talking or they're on their phone. And what they don't realize is they're never gonna see that house for the first time again. So they're never gonna know the, the gut feel that their buyers are likely gonna get driving up to that house. And it can be something as little as uh, the driveway is off a of main street versus a side street if it's a corner lot. Um, and did it take a long time to turn into the driveway because it was on a busy road and there are cars coming and it's gonna make it difficult to get in and out. Um, when you pull up, is there a big tree like obscuring the house so you don't see the house? Um, is is the um, is the elevation of the house? Is it weird? Like is the house on a weird angle or something like that? Um, so those are the things that you really you need to be paying attention the first time you drive up because a lot of times buyers, investors, eh, we don't think about these things too often. We see a thousand houses in a year, and so for us whether houses, what side the driveway is on or where there's a tree, we don't think about. But a buyer who's driving up to that house, a buyer who's potentially gonna live in that house for five or 10 or 50 years, they're taking note of everything they see when they drive up. So you need mm -hmm. to, to put yourself in the buyer's position and you need to, to see these things the very first time, excuse me, the very first time. Um, so 
it starts when you first drive up, when you walk into a house. Um, try and pick up on, again, the, the things that buyers are going to see for the first time. You walk in and what's your very first emotional impact. Um, if you walk into, um, like on a split level, if you walk into an entryway and there's stairs up and down, um, what's the view look like? I mean, do you see an enticing part of the upstairs or um, are you staring right at a wall? Um, because again, these are the first thing your buyers are going to see. And, and that first 15 seconds, that first 30 seconds, uh, a lot of times drives them to buying the house or not buying the house. Um, we like to use all of our senses. So you walk in and you see things, but what do you hear? Do you hear traffic noise in the background? Do you hear your neighbors in the background? Um, what do you smell? Um, does the house smell fresh? Do you smell mold, must, mildew? Um, because those are things that you might be able to do away with during your rehab, but that's going to impact your rehab costs. If, if you walk into a house and it smells musty, and if it's a foreclosure where the air conditioning has been off for six months, you expect it. But if it's a homeowner's house and somebody actually lives there and you still get this musty smell, you've got to wonder what's going on that like mm. the homeowner couldn't fix this or they haven't noticed this. Uh, so you have to factor that in. So for us, it's, it's less about, um, okay, what's the condition of the roof? What's the condition of the siding? For us, when we first walk into a house, it's what's the emotional connection? Is it positive? Is it negative? What are our buyers likely to? Are they going to walk in and the first thing they're going to do is smile or the first thing they're going to do is go, what is that? <laughs> um, so for, for us, that's, that's the first things we look for when we walk into a house. And then there's always time to go back and do your inspection and, and actually look at things in detail. Um, but again, that, that first impression, you only get one shot at it. I love that. It's, it's so high level. And I think I remember back, it's, I didn't think of any of that. I'm like, okay, here's a house. What's, what's the condition of the roof? What's, what's the rehab going to cost? And you don't think, okay, what's put yourself in that buyers. And that that's so intelligent because that's your end you know, buyer, that's your end audience. And yep. First house we ever, first house we ever bought was hideous. Um, it, it, it didn't fit the neighborhood and it just, it wasn't an attractive looking house. There are a lot of steps mm -hmm. up to the front door and I don't think we were paying attention the first time we went to that house. And for us, all we cared about were the numbers. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. the ARV should be this because this is what other houses in the neighborhood are selling for um, without the, the recognition that, well, that ARV is probably going to be lower because the average buyer is going to drive up to that house and they're going to look and say, oh, do I really want to live in that, that house? And there was nothing that a renovation could do to change the location of the house and the lot and the style of the house. And, and um, so that's just something that we learned from the very first house we did. We made that mistake of not putting ourselves in the, in the shoes of the buyer. So, yeah, again, try not to make the same mistakes twice. That's beautiful. I know. I, I love how you keep saying that. And it's, it's just so important. It's, it's no one's perfect. You're going to learn lessons, but, but don't make that second time, you know, and that's, and that's how I feel the book and your process with the blog gets you through most of the new beginner mistakes and even intermediate pro mistakes that you're going to go through so you can arm yourself, you know, to do better. So, yep. And in terms of rehabbing, so, you know, you're quantitative and you go over the scope and line by line items. Is there, is there a point where you can get to, you know, a square foot price or if you're doing a rehab, you know, can you find out within first five minutes of walking the property? So I get this question this is probably the most common question I get and probably the reason I wrote the estimating rehab cost book. Um, so 
Yes and no. Um, so to both of your questions. So the first question was, um, is there a way to do square foot pricing? Unfortunately, there's no good way to do square foot pricing if you're not an experienced investor. So mm -hmm. in Atlanta, to give you an idea of when you can use it, in Atlanta, um, our first 30 or 40 properties were basically all the same house. Um, there were a lot of houses in our farm area, the, the, the county that we were buying in, um, that were all built in the same time frame. Early 90s, two-story, 1,600 square foot, three-bedroom, two-bath, or two-and-a-half bath. Um, there were two or three builders that built the same floor plans. The homes were all the same ages. They were in the same types of neighborhoods, um, same type of, of subdivisions. And so after doing 10 or 20 or 30 of those, we could walk up to a house and we could say, we know what type of plumbing is in this house. And, and back then there was this thing, or there still is, it's called polybutylene plumbing, which is this plumbing material that was used in the 80s and early 90s that ended up being a really bad material. And so you see a house with this type of plumbing, you need to basically replace it. And so we knew walking into a house, we didn't have to look at the plumbing. We could tell by looking at the outside of the house, looking at the the year the house was built and knowing the area that it probably had polybutylene plumbing. So we knew right then that was $5,000 cost to replace that plumbing because buyers were going to require it or buyers inspectors were going to require it or buyers and lenders were going to require it. Um, so you start to see the same things over and over and all the houses were 1600 square feet. They all had three bedrooms. They all had two bathrooms. Um, they, they all needed new roofs because these houses were built in the early nineties and now we were in the, 2009, 10, 11 range. Um, so all the roofs were about 20 years old. So we didn't have to really do a big inspection on the roof. We knew that these houses were 20 years old. Roofs last about 20 years. So every one of these houses, we had to replace the roof. And every one of these houses, we had to replace um, the light fixtures and the plumbing fixtures. Every one of these houses, the, uh, the cabinetry was 20 years old, so probably needed updating. Every one of these houses had Formica countertops, and we wanted to put in stone. So every one of those, we knew we had to do that. So because we did essentially the same exact rehab over and over and over again. Um, we knew walking into one of these houses that mm. the last one that looked just like this and was the same age and the same type of neighborhood cost $23,000 to rehab. This one's going to cost $23,000 to rehab. Or if it's, if it's 20% bigger, it's probably 23,000 plus 20%. Um, and so it was really easy. The problem is we had to do 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 rehabs before we had the data um, mm -hmm. to actually say, we know how much these houses cost. And if I went to a house that was a different style, built in a different year, different type of builder, different type of neighborhood, different type of area, um, I had to start the process over. I couldn't use the data from these other houses. So there are times when square footage pricing or just walking into a house and saying, I know exactly how much this is going to cost works, but mm -hmm. it generally isn't something that's going to work for new investors. New investors, I, I really, I recommend learning the, the, the process, the methodology of basically inspecting a house top to bottom. The same thing an inspector does, uh, figuring out what needs to be done, um, the list of tasks, which I call the scope of work, and then assigning rehab pricing to each of those tasks. And what you'll find is um, one house may need new plumbing while another house doesn't. 
but every house that needs new plumbing is probably going to be about the same price um, based on the number of fixtures or based on the size of the house. Um, and one house may need paint, another may, might not, but every house that needs paint, you're probably going to have the same per square foot pricing for, for painting that house. So there are definitely shortcuts you can take. The first time you learn how much a painter charges per square foot, well, you have that number and you can apply it to every house. Um, but you're gonna have to walk into the house and see, does it need paint or does it not need paint? Um, so I, I really, I advocate for a really um, uh, quantifiable process. And in the book, I talk about 25 rehab components of a house. And so I basically talk about the, the major components, things like the roof, the gutters, the siding, uh, concrete work, landscaping, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, uh, demo, um, carpentry. So, and, and there are 25 big components that, that, that we can recognize in any particular house. Each of these 25 components can be broken up into subcomponents. So for plumbing, for example, um, you have your main line, which is the, the pipe that goes from the street to the house. Um, then you have your water heater, and then you have your, your internal, your rough piping. Um, you have a valve called your, your pressure release valve or your PRV valve. You have your finish um, stuff like your tubs and your faucets and your, your shower hardware. You have your, your appliances that use water. And each of these tasks under plumbing, you can evaluate independently. There are ways to evaluate, does the main line need to be replaced? Does the water heater need to be replaced? Um, but once you have these 25 high level components and then you have the 10 or 20 or 50 tasks, most common tasks under each of these components, components, it makes it pretty easy to walk through a house and say, okay, we don't need that, we don't need that, we need this, and this is how much of it we need. So we need new hardwood, and I can measure and see we need 1,200 square foot of hardwood. Okay, so that gets added to the task list. Uh, water heater, it's 10 years old. Okay, most water heaters don't last 10 years, so we need to replace the water heater. Okay, put that on the list. And you go through each of the 25 components, you go through all the tasks in each of the 25 components, you make a list of all the things you need to do, and then you go talk to contractors and you price them out. And this is a really laborious process. It, it takes time to learn, it takes time to do, but what you find is after you've done it, two or five or 10 or 20 times, it becomes second nature. So to your second question, and sorry, this is so drawn out, but to your second question, can you walk into a house and in five minutes um, know how much it's gonna cost? The answer is, once you really understand that process, once you know the, the high level components, once you know the subtasks under those components, once you know what your contractors tend to charge for different things, it may not be five minutes, but I can walk into a house that in an area I've never been, um, a style of house that I've nev never looked at, an age of a house that I'm not familiar with. And with a checklist in 15 minutes, I can say, here are the 60 things that need to be done um, and then be able to assign pricing to each and get the mm -hmm. rehab budget. So it's not easy. It takes a long time to learn just like anything. Um, but once you, once you learn it and once you really understand it, there's no reason why a rehabber can't walk into a house and in 15, 20, 30 minutes be able to come out with a budget that's within two, three, five percent of, of what their ultimate budget's going to be. Um, mm -hmm. And like I like to say, um, if it were easy, there'd be a lot more competition in this business. Everybody would be doing it. The nice thing is um, this is one way that good investors, good rehabbers can differentiate themselves from the competition by, by learning this process and getting good at this process because there are so many people that aren't good at it um, mm -hmm. that if you are good at it, you're, you're going to necessarily be more successful than, than 80 or 90% of the people out there. 
It's well said. I remember that. And, and that's what, you know, using your spreadsheet helped. It's a, here are the major, you know, bullet points that you need to know, and then bullet point each down. And, and once you get that second part to it, right, you're, you're shopping the prices, you know, that fixed cost, you add it in, then you just back into your profit. And it's just, it's so simple, but yet it's just checking off each one of those things task by task. And it helps so much. Yep. And, and knowing those prices, because I remember a few things like, oh, that's only going to cost five grand, ends up doubling. You're like, oh, well. <laughs> and that's, that's the hardest part is it's not so much figuring out what everything costs. It's figuring out the stuff you've missed. Um, mm. And that's why a good recommendation to any new rehabber, uh, the first time you get a house under contract, even before you, you, during your due diligence period, before you decide to move forward, I always recommend bringing in a, a really good property inspector. Um, and having the property inspector go top to bottom on the house. And that's a good sanity check. Um, in fact, it, uh, a really good property inspector, they'll essentially create your scope of work for you. They'll tell you everything that's, that's not working or that needs to be replaced. Um, and you can then use their, essentially their, their scope of work that they give you and go out and get pricing for all those things. Um, so if, if uh, for the first, I guess, 15 or 20 properties that, that we looked at, we brought in an inspector and basically we created our system for, for estimating rehab costs. Everything in that book is not too much different than what a property inspector does, um, mm -hmm. to generate the scope of work. And then the next step is just getting pricing for everything. That's beautiful. I love it. it. It's a great outline. It it makes total sense. And any tips, you know, working with the contractors and bidding out those costs, yeah, so that's the funny thing, um, or not funny, but uh, the last 10 years, if anything has changed, or everything has changed, but the thing that has changed most in the last 10 years is the difficulty of finding and working with contractors. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, I, I think even in the first edition of the book, so we're, we're getting ready to put out uh, second editions of both the estimating book and the flipping book um, in January of 2019. Um, and one of the big things I noticed in the first edition as I'm reading through it and, and, uh, and, and working on the second edition was how many times I note that working with contractors isn't difficult. And <laughs> it, yeah, you, you laugh. I laughed too. Everybody <laughs>, laughs when they read that. Um, because honestly, back in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 even, um, finding good contractors was really easy. Uh, after the, 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 the big downturn of 2007, 2008, a lot of contractors went out of business. And the only ones that were left were the ones that were good at contracting, had reasonable prices, knew how to manage their business, knew customer service. I mean, basically, the only contractors that were around back in 2009 and 10 were really good contractors who were reasonably priced. Um, and they were easy to incentivize. Um, basically, if they found out that you were doing five or 10 or 20 or however many flips a year, they were your best friend because they were having trouble finding jobs. And if they knew they could get 10 or 15 jobs out of you in a year, they were going to treat you well. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2015, 16, 17, 18, and contractors have more work than they have, they have time to complete. Um, you're competing with homeowners who are willing to pay a lot more than investors are willing to pay. Contractors don't need to be loyal because they know if uh, once they finish your job tomorrow, they can go out and find another job in 10 minutes. Um, so they don't need to, to keep you happy, for lack of mm -hmm. a better term. Um, and so contractors have gone from being really the easy part of the business back when we started to being one of the most difficult parts of the business these days. And so what I like to say is um, in any 
given rehab, you've got three things you're working with. Um, and, and, and I refer to it as better, faster, cheaper. And a lot of people may have heard that, that adage in other areas. I, we always used to talk about that in the tech space. Um, but you get better, faster, cheaper, you get to choose two of those. So you can find contractors that are gonna do high quality work and they're gonna do it fast, but they're not gonna be cheap. Or they're gonna do fast work and they're gonna be cheap, but the quality is gonna be low. Um, so you need to decide in your business between better, faster, cheaper, which of the two is most important to you. And then you need to find the contractors that are gonna be able to deliver those two because you're never gonna get all three. A lot of contractors will deliver zero or one, but the good contractors, they're going to deliver two of those. And so for us, it was always, um, we cared about, well, early on, we cared about uh, price and we cared about quality. So we were willing to, to spend more time and deal with contractors who were working alone or maybe with one other person. And so it would take them six months to do a job versus three months if we brought in a big crew. These days, we're less concerned about um, about money, we're more concerned about time uh, because we see the top of the market kind of approaching. We don't want to be left, uh, I, I use the analogy of musical chairs. Um, when the market turns, you don't want to be left without a chair. So we really want to get our, our jobs, our, our projects done really quickly. So for us, speed is really important these days. Um, quality is always important. So the trade-off we're willing to make is, is in cost. And these mm -hmm. days we're willing to pay more for contractors. We're doing fewer deals, but we're making sure that the deals we do have a, a good margin in there, a good, a good profit margin, so that we can pay contractors more. So for us, uh, time and quality are the most important things, and, and we're willing to pay more for contractors. So the first thing I recommend to anybody that that's rehabbing these days figure out which of those three things which two of those three things are most important and you'll find that that certain contractors are going to be more applicable to your business than others mm -hmm. great tips and as we're wrapping up you know 2018 um, what are some tips that you've learned in the past few years to to work with those contractors yeah so um again contractors are they've got a lot of work. So um, it's real easy for them to do stuff that they may not have done 10 years ago, like take on too many jobs and try and juggle multiple jobs because just like investors, they see that we're nearing the top of the market and they're trying to extract every penny they can before the market turns and, and it gets harder for them to find jobs. So I've seen a lot of contractors that'll take on two or three jobs at a time. And if you don't manage them closely, um, they're going to be at somebody else's job more than they're at your, your job. So um, one of the big things I always like to say is you either need to be at your rehab or you need to have somebody who's at your rehab, if not all the time, at least a good portion of the time. And you need to verify that your contractors are doing what they're going to say, what they say they're going to do. And in the time frame they say they're going to do it. Um, and if you're not at your rehab, they're going to lie to you. I mean, I, it really, it boils down to, I, I hate to generalize, but I've heard it mm. so many times the last couple of years where somebody will hire contractors, they'll say, yeah, we'll have it done in three months. And they don't really check in for the first month or six weeks. And six weeks later they go and they check out the rehab and nothing's been done. Mm. And it's not necessarily because the contractor was looking to screw them, but the contractor had three other jobs and the people that were managing them on the other jobs were pushing them harder. So squeaky wheel um they go to where they're they're getting beaten up so if you're not beating up your contractors and then I, I hate to use the term beating up but if you're not staying on top of your contractors and making sure they're doing what they promised there's a mm -hmm. good chance they won't be 
So mm-hmm. my, my biggest tip for anybody that's rehabbing these days um, when it comes to contractors is be there, have somebody that's there. Don't be scared to install cameras to, to check when, when your contractors are showing up and leaving. Don't be scared to show up at random times. Don't tell your contractors when you're showing up. If you say, hey, I just want to see how things are going. I plan to be there Thursday at 11 a.m. Yeah, there's a good chance your contractor is going to be there Thursday at 11 because they know you're showing up. So just show up at two o'clock on a Tuesday and see if they're there when they're supposed to be. Um, if they're not, well, they're probably not there anytime they're, they're supposed to be. So um, yeah, that's my, that's my biggest tip when it comes to contractors these days. Just stay on top of them because they really will drag things out and the difference between a project getting done in two months and six months, especially in this market where we're nearing a peak and, and things mm. could be turning down anytime soon. The difference between two months and six months could be the difference between profit and loss. Mm. Those are great tips. I, just amazing. I love holding that contractor accountable, right? It's whatever you hold accountable is, is going to be tracked. And, and I know this is a, a question that could change throughout the years as, as I assume the contracting does, but what about, you know, selling and marketing houses today and, and kind of pricing that endpoint? Yeah. So luckily today that's, that's easy. Um, when we started selling was really, really tough and we had to get really good mm-hmm. at it today. You throw something on the MLS and, and, um, and you just wait for it to sell hopefully in the first weekend. Um, mm-hmm. That said, tips for pricing today. Uh, people often ask, where do you price for a quick sale? In a market like the one we have, assuming your market's still hot, I know there are a few markets around the nation that, that I've talked to people where things are starting to slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. If, you're in, if you're still in a really hot market where things are going in the first or second weekend, I'm a big fan of overpricing by about 5% um, to start with. Um, best case, you get 5% more than than what you were expecting to get. There's a good chance your appraisals are going to come in because appraisers are, are being pretty generous these days. Worst case, if you don't get any bites in the first or second weekend, you drop the price to market value and you'll probably start getting some bites. So the worst case is you lose a week or two. Um, this is opposed to six or seven or eight years ago when um, you basically had to underprice houses to get buyers to even look at them. So mm-hmm. these days I, I say take advantage of the market, take advantage of the fact that it's, it's a seller's market and, and overprice a little bit for a week and you can always drop the price a week later. Um, okay. If you're in a market that's starting to slow down a little bit, there's still no reason not to price at market value, maybe a thousand or 2000 above. Um, the, the key is to get people through the house and mm-hmm. selling is always a numbers game. And if you can get 10 or 20 people through a house in the first weekend and you've done a good job of rehabbing it, you're going to get an offer. Um, so I, I've, we, we, my wife likes to ask the question um, and she's, she's our agent for our deals. Um, she likes to ask the question, what do we have to price this at to get 20 people through the house the first weekend? And if you have to price it below market to do that, then you price it below market. If you can price it above market and still do that, then you price it above market. Um, It really is. It's a numbers game. And so you have to ask yourself, what number can I price this at? What's the highest number I can price this at and still get good traffic the first weekend? Mm -hmm. That's a great question to ask. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, So I want to switch gears a little bit before before the end of the show. And I want to talk about mindset. And and Mm -hmm. I've seen you on the topic before. It's just amazing amazing takeaways and, and you talk about uh, on a website rich or wealthy so so what's the distinction between the two of those yeah so um and everybody's going to have their own definitions here so i'm not trying to tell people what they should think or what other people think this is just my definition um mm-hmm. but I, I distinguish 
between rich and wealthy is as rich is you have enough money to kind of buy what you want today and do what you want today without putting yourself or your family in financial peril. Um, wealthy is having the, an amount of money that you can do that today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that um, and being confident you can continue to do that without having to worry about money. And for me, the big distinction between rich and wealthy, and unfortunately it took me too long to learn this. Um, everybody associates me with flipping houses and, and that's because I've, we've done a lot of flips over the last decade. Um, but honestly, if I had started or if I had thought about this sooner when I started, um, we would have mixed in those flips with a good number of rentals as well. Because what mm -hmm. I found is that the big differentiator between rich and wealthy is active versus passive income. Um, it's pretty easy to be rich when you're selling or when you're, you're doing 20 flips a year and making 50,000 profit in each. I mean, you can make a million dollars a year. Um, but if you want to be wealthy, you need to figure out a way that you can be generating that recurring income year after year after year, even if you want to retire or you want to travel or you get sick and you can't work for a few months or a year. Um, Having, having these, these income streams that just recur year after year after year, month after month after month, really puts you in a position that you don't need to keep working to keep making money. And mm. it was great. I mean, it's great to make 15 or 20 or $50,000 at a time. I mean, that's a really good feeling. Um, but there's something to be said for making $1,000 a month for the rest of your life. Um, and so I can live on $50,000 for however long I can live on $50,000 for, I can live on $1,000 a month for much longer when you have a number of those. Um, so when we talk about rich versus wealthy, a lot of times I like to frame it as active versus passive income. Um, and I'm a big fan of working hard to create the active income either flipping properties or being a consultant or working a W-2 job, the nine to five job, nothing wrong with that. Um, doing whatever you can to generate, um, basically trade your time for money, but then take that money and spend as little of it as possible at first and use it to invest in things that are going to generate income month after month after month. Um, mm -hmm. Because that's really, um, once, once you realize the value and the power of, of getting monthly income, getting checks every month, um, it really is sort of addicting. Um, and there, there's, there's nothing like knowing, hey, I could, I could take the summer off, which is what I do every summer with my family. Basically, we take off for the summer and spend the time with the kids and we travel and knowing I'm probably pretty much going to make the same amount of money whether I'm working or taking the time off. It makes it easy to, to decide to take the time off. Um, mm -hmm. so think of, in, think in, when you think about rich versus wealthy, I, I actually prefer to frame it as active income versus passive income. And if you're only thinking about active income, start thinking a little bit more about the passive as well, because, uh, eventually you'll get old like me. Um, mm -hmm. and you'll regret that you didn't think about that sooner. <laughs> well said. I've, I've read a couple hundred real estate business books and that was hands down best definition I've ever heard rich versus wealthy. So I appreciate that. Um, so last year on Facebook, you had this post and, and I loved it because it stopped me in my tracks and, and you asked, what would you rather work two hours a day and make 200 K per year or work 10 hours a day and make a million per year? Yep. So, so what's behind why? Uh, I am a big proponent of figuring out what's important to you. Um, and everybody assumes, <clears throat> I shouldn't say everybody, I'm sorry, I shouldn't generalize like that, but there are a lot of real estate investors who take the attitude, more money is better. 
Um, I see a lot of real estate investors who are in it because they want the Lamborghini or they want the Ferrari or they want the, uh, the mansion or they want this or that. Um, and so I think it's, it's really easy for us to go in with this attitude, if you don't think about it, that more money is better than less money. And certainly all other things being equal, more money is better than less money. Um, but eventually when you have a family or you get a little bit older, um, I think a lot of us recognize that um, money is great, um, but what's more important than money is time. And when you really recognize the value of time, um, you start to realize that, hey, maybe there's another way of doing things. Instead of working 60, 70, 80 hours a week trying to, to make a million or $10 million, maybe there's another way. Maybe working a couple hours a week and making enough money that all you can do is, is, is live and travel a little bit, maybe that's enough. And so again, this is one of those things that I've realized as I've gotten older, that it's not about the toys that we have, it's not about the, the expensive cars, it's not about the expensive houses. Um, it really is about having the time to do what you want, when you want, to be able to spend with your family, um, to deal with things like, last year, unfortunately, we, we have a, a, a good friends, a couple, um, and she passed away from cancer. and. We were talking to her husband, who was a good friend of ours, our, our neighbor in Atlanta, and he was dealing with like trying to figure out what he was going to do. They have two little kids. They were going to, he's going to sell the house. And, and I said, look, as soon as you're comfortable, let us know. We'll come down. We'll help you get the house ready to sell. We'll help you with the kids, whatever. He's like, I'm ready now. And a week later, my wife and I said, okay, we're leaving. And we picked up and we went down to Atlanta for six weeks and we were maybe able to be there for our friend and, and his kids. And it was such a good feeling to know that like that was, that to us was better than having a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or a big mansion, being able to pick up and knowing that I could stop working for six weeks and my wife didn't have to work or do anything for six weeks and we could just go down there and help a friend. I mean, that was, that was really eye-opening for us. Um, and so the older I get, the more I realize that um, time is more valuable than money. And so there's certainly an amount of money that you need to kind of live your lifestyle, whether that's 20,000 a year or a hundred thousand or $200,000 a year. Um, but you should be asking yourself when it comes to having more money than that, What's more important to you? Is it having more money or is it having the time? And if it's having more money, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's having more money, nothing wrong with that. Go work 80 hours a week. If, if having toys is like the thing that drives you, nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to tell people what they should think or feel or, or, or want. Um, go do it. But if you, if you think about it, I think a lot of us um, will come to the, the realization that having more time is actually more um, more freeing and, and, and more attractive. Um, and there are ways you can, you can do that. So, uh, that post, and it's funny because I'd forgotten about that post, but that post was really just, uh, one of those things to get people to think about, um, how much money do you really need? Um, mm -hmm. and how important is money compared to having time? And, and so again, for me, as I get older, that, that, balance really shifts. And I think if other people are forced to think about it, um, mm -hmm. they'll find that, that their answer may be different than, than what they previously assumed. Yeah. Well, that was beautiful. And, and I love how you asked those certain questions to, and you're not like you, you keep saying, you're, you're not telling people what to think about or what to do, but you're, you're like a great teacher 
you're presenting that question for the self-reflection and finding your personal goals. And I think, and I think that's why I respect you so much and you're so real. And I was just talking to Darren Sager last night on the phone. He's like, he's like one of the smartest guys in the room. And I, and that, and I think that's quite the compliment and it, and it comes true. So I appreciate, I appreciate the knowledge. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's very kind. Yep. And um, so before we wrap things up, so, so what are some of your other passions these days? Um, I love investing. Um, I, I talk a lot about how I hate real estate and people always <laughs> laugh when I say that, but it's true. I don't enjoy the nitty gritty of real estate. I love mm -hmm. the idea of buying assets and mm -hmm. selling them for more money or buying assets and generating cash flow off them. And real estate just happens to be an asset class that I invest in. And mm -hmm. it's one of many. So, um, um, I, I do some business investing. I invest in some, some tech stuff. My wife and I, um, we own racehorses, so I love horses. And, and so that's just kind of a passion of ours. Um, uh, I do a lot of writing and I love writing. I love teaching. So, so that's great. Um, I do some cryptocurrency investing and I work with some, some cryptocurrency companies on, on, in the, on the technology side. Um, so basically anything that is business or investing related, I mm -hmm. love to do. Um, and real estate, again, it's a great asset class to be buying and selling. But if I can make money in something else I enjoy, I'll, I'll do that in a heartbeat. Um, I'm not tied to real estate. I'm not tied to any one thing. It's just I, I love the, the thrill of the hunt, I guess you could say, when it comes to investing in business. Awesome. And uh, we have a little bit of time for the interviewee three. So I asked three questions at the end of inter any, every interview and, okay. and that's your best advice you've ever received on business, real estate, and life. So Ooh. best advice, each one. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with, with uh, real estate. Um, and I think I kind of touched on it. So back in 2009, I always say 2009, I don't really remember, but I tell the story and I think it was around 2009. Uh, I'm having lunch with uh, a big investor down in Atlanta. Uh, this is when I was just getting started and I invited him to lunch and he agreed. And um, I basically asked him the, the same question. I was like, give me your best piece of advice. <laughs> and he said to me um, at the time, and I didn't listen, but he said to me at the time, um, one day you're going to regret every house you've ever sold. And he was a, he, he bought for cash flow. He was a, he was a landlord. Um, he started out flipping houses and came to the conclusion that like he liked passive income better. And I kind of laughed. I was like, yeah, well I'm making 20, $25,000 per house flipping 20, 30 houses a year. Um, I'm pretty happy with the ones I'm, I'm, I'm selling, but thank you for the advice. I appreciate that. Here we are eight, nine years later. And I regret every house I've ever sold. He, he was a hundred percent correct. I wish I had kept every house I had ever sold um, because if I had, if I had rented out every house that I ever bought um, and I was generating cash flow from that, I'd be generating more in two or three years than I probably made in the 10 years flipping them. So, um, so yeah, so when it comes to real estate, um, and I, I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and they're going to laugh it off just like I did, but one day everybody's going to realize you're going to wish you held on to pretty much every house you ever sold. Um, best advice in life. Um, my best advice for life is, is, is really it boils down to that figuring out what your priorities are. Um, again, I think a lot of us assume we know what our priorities are. We, we assume more money is, is better than less money and we kind of go to work every day, whether it's a job or, or, or self-employed or investors, whatever it is, um, and we generate more money without ever thinking how much money do we really need and how much would, would we rather have time and how much would we 
be willing to trade in terms of money for time. Um, and so I guess my, my best advice for life is um, think about that. And, and when you think about it, you may come to a different conclusion than what you assume. You may realize mm -hmm. that the, the money is great, but hey, I, I hadn't been thinking about the value of time. Um, and again, as you get older, I think that's something that, that you'll, you'll start to recognize. So it's even better if you think about it when you're young. Um, so you haven't lost 10 or 20 years before you start thinking about it. Uh, and then I guess what was the last question? Uh, best advice for business? Um, best advice for business. I am a big fan of it, it, a lot of people say, do what you love. Um, and then there are a lot of people who say, don't do what you love because you're not going to make money doing what you love. I'm a big fan of, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you love doing. Mm -hmm. And then there's this whole bunch of stuff that you can make money doing. Um, the two probably have a small overlap. Um, too many people assume there's a big overlap. Too many people assume there's no overlap. There's probably a small overlap between what you love doing and what you can make money doing. Work really hard to figure out what that overlap is and spend your time doing it. Um, because there probably aren't a lot of things you, you love that you can make money doing, but there's probably something. And so for me, uh, books is, the, is, is a perfect example. Um, I love teaching. I love writing. Um, it turns out I didn't do this for the money when I started writing, but it turns out I can make some money writing books um, and teaching and doing something that I really love. So for me, the, uh, the books is a perfect example of finding that, that overlap of what you love and what makes money. And so I suggest to everybody, see if you can find an overlap and start there. You don't have to finish there, but it's a good place to start. Wise advice, Jay. <laughs> Amazing. So best place to find out more about you uh, when the new book is uh, edition of the book is coming out and released and where they can find it. Yep. So uh, the book on flipping houses and the book on estimating rehab costs were originally released in 2013. Second editions will be coming out. They'll be published again by bigger pockets. Um, and the release date, uh, I believe it will be released um, pre-release on bigger pockets um, or pre-sale on bigger pockets early December released, uh, I think January 3rd or 4th. And then they'll be on Amazon uh, about a week after that. So, January 10th, 11th, somewhere in there of 2019, mm -hmm. they'll be on, on, uh, uh, released on Amazon. Um, best place to find me, my website, 123flip.com. If you want to get more information about our first 50 flips and a lot of the lessons that we've learned over the last decade. And for anybody that's on Facebook that wants to find me on Facebook, uh, my username, it's facebook.com slash jscottinvestor. Great. I love it, Jay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's just a high level approach to real estate investing and, and just you've brought so much value in the last hour. It's amazing. So thank you on behalf of me and the enlisters. I'm, I'm sure I'm getting a lot of compliments too. So, Oh, this was great. In fact, it was, it was nice. You've asked a lot of questions that I don't generally get asked on, on podcasts. So it was great covering different material. And, and so I really appreciate this. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. Cool. Thanks, Scott. And that concludes our book club interview with author Jay Scott, who wrote the book on flipping houses and the book on estimating rehab costs. These books are going to teach you how to buy, rehab, and resell residential properties. It's the investor's guide to defining your renovation plan, building your budget, and knowing exactly how much it all costs. I highly recommend these two books. They're going to be books that are going to be on your bookshelves that you constantly refer back to. And I want to thank Jay for coming on the show and offering so much value to the listeners. 
make sure you check them out at 123flip.com. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well as where to purchase the new editions of the book. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Make sure you check us out on Facebook and Instagram so you can stay up to date to the authors we're interviewing and the education coming out. We'll see you next time.